Well, good morning. How are you today? Yeah? Nothing quite like coming up on stage to teach after the main character dies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah? Uh, I wanted to just kick things off this morning by, one, saying thank you guys so much for allowing me to open God's Word with you this weekend. But truly, that, that part's easy compared to the work that your youth pastors, youth directors are doing. And so I wanted to just honor them real quick. If, if you're that person in your church who's, you know, been, been tasked with shepherding the students here in this room, could you just stand up real quick for me? Youth pastor, youth director. All right. Stay, stay standing. Stay standing for me. Hold up. All right. I love it. I love that you guys are showing them appreciation. To, to those of you standing, I want to say this. Your job matters immensely. And although at times you may feel underappreciated, um, what you're doing is making a significant impact in the lives of these students and the ones who weren't able to come this weekend. I think Paul's words to the church in Galatia are, are the most fitting um, when he says, don't grow weary in doing good. The complexities of your job, the leadership you sit under, most people will never understand what that's like. I, I get it to a degree. I just wanted to say thank you. And to your students, I wanted to say, that's who God's given you in this season of your life to help you walk closer with Jesus. Take full advantage of that gift that God's given you in your youth group. So give it up for these guys and gals. Thank you so much for what you do. The fact of the matter is I have said nothing this weekend that they have not said to you a hundred times, but for some reason in a camp setting, God has this way of just speaking more clearly to our hearts. And so this weekend has really been about arguably the, the, the most important message any of us can understand as humans. You think about it, we've been in this book of Ecclesiastes and we've watched this incredible kind of series of films that depict the message of this book. And the takeaway is nothing really matters. Now, that could depress someone. The term for that would be nihilism. Hey, nothing matters. Big things are too complicated for me to understand, so why even try? That's not what Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. Rather, what Solomon is doing is saying nothing matters when you compare it to God, right? It, it, it's, like, it's like going to Sizzler versus going to Fleming's. It's like, sure, you could get steak, but it's probably going to make your stomach hurt and no one's going to want to sit in a car with you. You know what I'm saying? Or you could go somewhere where they, they do it right. They do it the best. And so even as we saw last night, a handful of you guys enter into the family of God, which I, I went to bed just like so pumped for that, that's not the end of the journey, right? Like the, 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 the hope of the hope of the, the gospel, the message of Jesus, was not getting people to, to pray a one-time prayer as if he was closing a, a timeshare deal. Oh, got another sale. Like God didn't crunch the numbers last night and go, all right, we added four more or whatever. No, no, no. That's the beginning of the journey. And many of you in this room, young and old, student, counselor, youth pastor, Hume staff, you've been on that journey. That was the starting point. There is no end to it. It's going to go on into eternity. 
Remember, the message of the gospel is not pray this prayer so that when your heart stops beating, you can go to the good place when you die instead of the bad place. No, the message of Jesus is heaven is here now. God wants to bring heaven into you. God wants heaven to, to be dwelling within you. He wants you to be formed and fashioned through the reading of his word, through praying to him, through being a part of the body of Christ. And there's a transformation process that happens as you enter into that. I shared with you that my youngest daughter was adopted through the foster care system. I thank God every time I think about it for that journey. But the truth is, when we got home, she was adopted on a Friday. We got home on Saturday. Things were the same as they were on Thursday before we left. It wasn't like she magically was a fan in that moment because a judge said that. No, she still had to learn how to do what we do as a family, how to, how to have her character formed the way that my wife and I are raising and, and discipling our children. She still had to remember who she was, this new identity. She, she received a new name on the day that she was adopted. She had to live into that new name. She became Maylie Grace Fenn on that day. And it wasn't like everything was just magically different and better in that moment. No, from that moment until now, she's still figuring it out. For those of you who are following Jesus, that's precisely how God describes this process of, of formation, if you will, of discipleship. It's a day-in, day-out journey of learning how to follow after the ways of Jesus and allowing his character, his love, his goodness, the spirit of God, which the scriptures say now dwells in the hearts of believers, the, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. And I think that we have to pay attention to that. You, at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, you have to begin thinking about your life through those terms, or everything that Solomon's talked about is going to become your story. It's not Jesus and. It's not like I really want to go to a good college and follow God. It's I'm following God, and, and maybe he'll lead me to a good college, but the following God is the constant. That's the thing that remains the same. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we'll unpack this idea just as we close our time together this morning. We're just going to read the last two verses of chapter 12, and we talked about these a little bit yesterday and on Friday night, but let's unpack them here. As you turn there, I'm going to pray one more time. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for our salvation, for the new way of life that you've afforded us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help these students and counselors and youth pastors, Lord, the, the staff up here at Hume. I, I pray that you would help us all to endure in our relationships and in our faithfulness to you. And as we see these words that Solomon wrote down thousands of years ago, God, would you just tune our ears and our hearts to see a different way of living on this side of heaven. We love you so much. Amen. So Solomon begins to write like what would, he calls it here the conclusion of the matter. So 38 different times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he's called everything meaningless. Remember, that word in Hebrew is hevel, which means like a smoke or a vapor or a mist. It's intangible. You can't quite hang on to it. You might be able to see it. You might be able to sense its presence, but it's not something that you can really apply to your life. He draws that comparison of things that are meaningless to things like wealth, sex, relationships, property, all of those types of things. 
And what he's not doing, and please don't walk away from camp with this message, he's not saying those things are bad. What he's saying is those things don't satisfy. There's a big difference. He's not saying don't participate in a a, a loving relationship someday. He's not saying don't participate in having a job with career aspirations. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if that goal is the ultimate goal of your life, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you get old and realize, I think I've wasted it. And So at the end of this book that he writes, he says this, verse 13, now all has been heard Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. After calling our worldly pursuits of purpose and pleasure meaningless 38 times, Solomon sums up the entirety of his writing by giving us really two principles that he says are of value. Two principles where we actually can find meaning and value and purpose on this earth for as long as God has put breath in our lungs. And the first thing that he says will add value to your life. You will will find your identity in this. You will begin to find your purpose, your passion, and even pleasure in this is to fear God. We talked about this Uh, A few days ago, we talked about how fearing God in the truest sense of the definition is to have a reverence or an awe for God. Even more uh, kind of practically said, to fear God is to allow God to be God in your life. I'm living for God. I'm not in charge of my life anymore. I don't make decisions on my good days through the lens of what Corey wants. I make decisions through the lens of what does God desire for my life? Loving my neighbor, treating others as I'd like to be treated, Loving the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what it means to fear God. The second thing he says is to keep his commandments. What an incredibly unpopular message today where the primary thing that you guys are being formed by in this culture is to live your story, is to live your truth. Your sexual identity, that becomes your entire uh, sense of being. The extracurricular activities you participate in, that becomes your entire identity and sense of well-being. What Solomon just said here is really what should prioritize the order of our life. It's fearing God and second, keeping his commandments, which means this. When I'd like to do something by my own spirit, maybe it would be to harm, to hurt, to get revenge, to judge, That second part, keeping his commandments, is what allows me to live life a different way than I naturally would like to live because of that sin thing we talked about yesterday. Does that make sense? These words honestly mirror the writing of of one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Like this concept of fearing God and keeping his commandments mirrors so well the words of Jesus in the New Testament. Turn to Luke 9 with me. Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. I'll read verse 21, but we're going to highlight verse 23 here. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone this. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day to be raised to life. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily to follow me. Let me just paint a picture for you for just a second. Jesus is teaching this. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can look this up later. He's teaching this in a town called Caesarea Philippi, which is about a day's journey, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi would have been a secular pagan city, and this city would have been known for the types of pleasures that it offered its residents. Going to church in Caesarea Philippi meant worshiping a Greek god in a temple with a prostitute. The wine flowed freely. The sacrifices oftentimes were human sacrifices with with hope that these made-up fake demonic gods would give you better grapes at harvest season, more children, so on and so forth. With all that to say, Caesarea Philippi is a city. Here's really the only takeaway you need to know. Caesarea Philippi as a city was a place where you could look to find meaning, purpose, and pleasure through all of the things that Solomon has listed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Money, alcohol, sex, all of these things. That's what the heart of Caesarea Philippi was. Jesus shows up with his disciples And as Jesus shows up, it says that great crowds came around him. Keep in mind, there weren't movies. Music had to be live. Sometimes I think if I showed up like at that day and age with an iPhone, I could just blow people's minds. I could just show up and like take a picture of them and they'd be like, what? I look like that? I'm magic. Jesus shows up, the guy who turns water to wine, the dude who raises dead people back to life, he's for sure going to draw a crowd because of his credibility, because of his, his uh, reputation, if you will. And so Jesus addresses this crowd who all are desiring to follow something or someone because of what they would get out of it, and he looks at them and he says to them all, the word says, he says to them all, Jesus is quoted as saying, if any of you would like to come after me, modern day translation would be this, if any of you call yourselves Christians, The term Christian wasn't a word that the early church was known by. The term Christian, uh, as as far as scholars say, was a derogatory term applied to people who were faithfully following God. And so the word at its core means little Christ. And people were, were living out the words of Jesus and following the ways of Jesus so much so that they were teased for it. They were called little Christ as a result of this. The more accurate word for what we understand as Christian in Scripture would be disciple of Jesus. And so this notion that exists today, that we can just show up to church once, maybe twice a week, and check that box of Christianity is actually not a biblical concept. The idea that I could pray a prayer one time at camp and then live the rest of my days feeling good because when I die, I'll go to the good place and not the bad place is actually not a biblical message. What is a biblical message is I now follow Jesus with my life. I seek to emulate him in the way that I treat others. I seek to spend time with him so that his character, his spirit, and his word can form me while I'm on this earth to look more like him. The commandments that God gives us are not to keep us from having fun. They're not to make us feel sheltered or homeschooled, if you will. No, the commandments that God gives us are to keep us from sin so that our life could be prolonged by not having to experience the death or consequences that sin brings on us. And so you might think like, man, I can't follow Jesus. That means I can't party anymore. 
While it, while it does, in fact, mean that, you have to live a life that's marked by sobriety, it also means that when you sacrifice the things of this world to follow Jesus, the, the affections of your heart grow, and that actually becomes less appealing because you've now experienced the presence of God in your life. When you're in that relationship and, and, and you, you go, man, this sucks, we can't have sex until we're married. What you're ultimately doing is you're prolonging your life through not setting yourself up to have an STD, not setting yourself up to have a baby when you financially can't afford it, not setting yourself up to give a part of your heart away to somebody only for that relationship not to work out and now you have to carry that heartache with you. Like when the Bible gives us a, a, a sexual ethic, it's not doing so because it doesn't want you to have fun. It's doing so because the heart of God is to keep you from unnecessary pain because life is hard enough as it is. And sometimes we have the propensity to make life so much more difficult when, like Solomon says, we try everything under the sun. And so Jesus is addressing these would-be disciples, these little Christs, if you will, and he says, hey, if you want to be a Christian, if you'd like to come after me, to follow me, two things are going to be necessary. First, he says, is that you have to pick up your, I'm sorry, first he says is that you must deny yourself. The first thing he says is you must deny yourself. Very similar to what Solomon says in that you must fear God. He says, hey, you must deny yourself, which essentially means you must say no to the Lord that is I. I'm no longer God anymore. I, I remember one time my, my youngest daughter, Maylee, she's really into crafts. Like, that kid thinks Hobby Lobby is Disneyland, which is awful for me, because I can't even go in that place. It's so gross to me. But we go. And so we went one time, and she got this uh, bead kit. Half of you don't even know what that is. It's, it's a bunch of beads to make bracelets out of. Really hitting it with the male audience here with this story. Uh, and so she got this bead kit, and we got home, and she just immediately starts, she's got these, you know, tiny little, at the time, seven-year-old fingers, and I'm like can't even my hands shake. Like, I can't even do this with you. I'm like, but why don't you make me a bracelet? She goes, okay, I'll make you a bracelet. And so an hour later, she comes up to where I'm sitting. I'm sitting at my desk in my office and she goes, dad, I made you a bracelet. And I go, I can't wait to see it. By the way, your parents lie all the time when you were a kid. Like when you're a kid and you draw them a picture and they go, wow, it's so good. It's not. They just don't know how to tell you that. Uh, like you come home from church with like your, your, your color painting of like Jesus holding a lamb. They throw that trash away so fast. Like the second you walk out of the room, it's done for, you know? Was that too honest? I'm sorry. Um, with that said, with that in mind, I'm not exactly sure what kind of like bracelet I'm about to get from my sweet little daughter. And she hands me this bracelet and it was colorful and it was stretchy. I got these fat wrists and she goes, dad, try it on. And I put the bracelet on and I turn it over and it says, daddy, God. Daddy God. And I was like, oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's the... How fast can I throw this away? <laughs> I'm just sitting there going like, okay, cool. Love it. I like the pink and the green. That's a very average combo. I love it. Like, this is great. But like, what's the... What's the inspiration for this art, sweet daughter? And she goes, well, you're my daddy. And I go, yes, I am. Again, for an adopted kid to make that connection is like deeply special. And I go, thank you, I am. And she goes, and you love God. 
And I go, I do. I do love God. I think sometimes when we go through life, we have to understand we're not in charge of our lives anymore. If you've professed faith in Jesus, that love that you have for God is now the primary driving force of your life. It's God first. So when you go through life to make a decision, if it's around a relationship, if it's around a job, you're now going to filter that decision through what does God want for my life. When Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves to follow me, what he's saying is you are not your own God anymore. You're not in charge of your life. Now, the beauty of God is that we get a seat at the table. We get to take our request to him in prayer. We have the freedom to live out his will for our lives in many different ways. I think there's creative ways. There's, there's, there's beautiful ways. There's also, depending on how you're wired, just very straightforward ways. Like I've been a pastor for almost 18 years. I'm not a pastor because I wanted to be one. I'm a pastor because the God of the universe led me into this work, and I seek to follow and honor him with my life. Now, most of the time, I don't do the best at that, but I strive really hard to do that. When I fall short, when I put myself on the throne of my heart, that's a wonderful opportunity for me to confess that sin. It's an amazing opportunity for me to have accountability in my life. Much of sin, by the way, is you working out who's ultimately in charge of your life now. I've got this friend, Nick, and every Sunday morning at 8.30, we get on the phone and we confess our sins of the week to each other. It's not fun. It's really not fun. Because sometimes I have to share things that I did, that I thought, that I said, that are, quite frankly, kind of embarrassing. And my kind of bent, if you will, like the desire that I have, is to sort of just project perfection. I'm at my best when people think, Corey's got it together, he's doing great, what a trustworthy guy. That's like the image that I want to portray to people around me. The truth of the matter is, I'm grumpy sometimes. I get angry. I get mean. In traffic, I curse like a sailor in my head. I'm like, who's this stinking priest? Get out of my way. You know, and like I go there in my head. And so uh, I'm on social media. I see all the same things you guys see. There's obviously temptation for me to click on a link, to check out a picture. The temptation's always there to not be pure in my heart. Just because I'm married doesn't mean that that desire sometimes goes away. No, I have to be disciplined and diligent in my fight to both honor my wife and God, and sometimes I fail. And so this relationship with Nick is awesome because I have to call him at 8.30 before we go to church, by the way, and go, well, here's my week. Here's, here's where I blew it. And he goes, awesome. Hey, that came up actually three weeks in a row. What are we going to do about that? And I go, I don't know, what are you going to do about your stuff, Nick? Leave me alone, back off, you know? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> but there's this, there's this desire in my heart as I draw closer and, and deeper into intimacy with our, our Lord Jesus. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to have accountability. I don't want to end up like a headline of someone who just made a mess out of their life. I want to run this race long and hard, and I want to take people with me along the way. The denial of self is ultimately putting God in his right place in your life, where you follow him. The second thing Jesus says, very similar to Solomon's words of obey God's commandments, the second thing is, Jesus says, to pick up your cross daily, 
to pick up your cross daily. Now, this one's kind of fun because it goes over our heads if we're not careful. The cross today is like a beautiful necklace, a license plate frame, a sweet tattoo. Who's got a cross tattoo? Yeah, no shame. I'm not going to tease you. The, uh, no, I said I'm not going to tease you. Okay, so the, the, like nowadays, the cross has become kind of this like ornate representation of our faith, as it should be. I don't think that's a bad thing, just to be really clear. My own opinion, the cross is where my hope is. Jesus crucified and resurrected is literally what drives my entire life, okay? Cross is a good thing. In Jesus's day, the cross was a torture device. In Jesus's day, the cross was akin to lethal injection or the electric chair. And so like in the first century, if you were wearing a, a cross kind of necklace, a, a cross kind of representation, like you're like the, like what the heck, dude? What are you doing? Like we, on Fridays, we see people die on those things. Why are, why are you wearing that? So when Jesus says this to a crowd of people in a town where worship typically meant self-gratification and pleasure, you have to imagine the offense that they had when he said those words because the cross represented something completely different. In order for us to bear our crosses, by the way, here's what this word actually means. It means I'm going to carry with me the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as I go through this life. The cross is the representation of what we as Christians, as disciples of Christ, have as a hope on this side of eternity. When Jesus says to bear your cross, what he's telling us to do is he's telling us to put God first in everything. This means you're going to associate yourself with the death of Jesus. Bearing your cross means you'd be willing to do anything out of obedience for Jesus. Remember, it was through obedience to the Father that Jesus went to the cross. The night before, he's crying and sweating blood, saying, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. We have to die to ourselves daily. And this is what Jesus would want to make abundantly clear to those who desired to be his followers. As I conclude my time together with you this weekend, the takeaway from this morning's talk that I want you to understand is that if you're satisfied because you prayed a prayer at camp or at church and no part of your life represents, reflects, or follows after Jesus, you could do better. Jesus tells us that he came to give us life abundantly, that, that it's actually in Jesus that we can find the true meaning of life, that our soul can find its purpose, that we can have passion in this world through living out the things of God, being a part of something far bigger than ourselves. I hope Solomon's words have kind of served as a, a warning for you, as a caution. Don't do this on your own. You can make a mess of your life if you seek after the things that the Bible would call worldly, hoping that they will give you the things that only God can give you. And oftentimes, that journey of learning how to put God first is a long one, and we're going to mess up a lot. Thank God for the, for the fact that he's rich in mercy and rich in grace like we talked about last night. Thank God that he's wealthy with it and he gives it away freely to his people. If you've messed up, it's not over. Confessing that sin, repenting, which means to change your mind and choosing to get back on track and do better next time is precisely what God has called and asked of you. Being a part of the church that you came up here with or the church that you regularly attend Man, as you guys uh, gear up in high school and get ready to graduate, find a church that teaches the Bible. 
Find a church that puts Jesus first in everything they do. Associate yourself with a pastor or a small group leader who desires to show you how to follow Jesus in the ways that we've talked about this morning. And ultimately, fear God and keep his commandments. As Solomon says, this is the conclusion of the matter. Life's meaning, life's purpose, the joy and peace that you desire to get out of this life here on earth, it can't be found anywhere outside of a relationship with God. So press into that and watch your world transform as God transforms your heart and your mind and your soul. Again, thank you guys so much for your time this weekend. Uh, It's been a joy and an honor to get to open God's word with you. Let me pray with you one last time. And as we do this, I'd I'd love to pray a blessing over you. Um, Something we do at my church that's kind of unique is uh, the invitation is if you'd like to receive that blessing, just hold your hands out. And if you're like, I don't want this blessing, Corey, then just hold your hands to yourself. I don't want to give it to you anyways. Sound good? (laughs) All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy in my life, in our life. Lord, as I think about the life that you've designed, the life that you have, as we talked about last night in Psalms 139, you know when we stand, we know, you know when we sit, you can discern our thoughts from afar. Jesus, for these students, God, for these counselors, for these youth pastors, I pray a life marked by following after you. God, I pray that you would bless them on their journeys with people to help them endure and continue to both deny themselves and pick up their cross daily to follow you. God, I pray that in your kindness and in the sweetness of your grace, you would bless these individuals with people who would come around them to help them follow after you for all of their days. Lord, the sin that we carry on to, the darkness, the gross stuff, would you help us to find people that we can confess that to, people that we can shine a light on to help us in this journey. God, ultimately, I pray your mercy, your grace, and an abundance of your presence over each and every person that came to camp this weekend. Help us to be more like you, Jesus. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.